everyone, and welcome to the lecture podcast for English 206. This is week four. As always, you can find the PDF of the lecture slides that accompany this lecture, as well as all the readings, in your Canvas module. Okay, so we're going to talk about regionalism and this sort of literature of the local colorists that came out of the later part of the 19th century uh, when it was increasingly popular beginning at the end of the Civil War and then up through the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, and it's worth pointing out before we get started on the specific readings for this week that the sort of regional literature that we're talking about today fits under the umbrella of a larger literary genre, and that's realism. So on slide two, I've given you a brief overview of realism. It's literary fiction rooted in the observation and documentation of the details and experiences of everyday life. Uh, and if you're thinking to yourself, I can think of a ton of stories, uh, novels, TV shows, plays, etc., that do this. Yeah, absolutely. So realism became popular and sort of developed as the genre and to become the genre we know now uh, at this time. So this is a bit of a switch from sort of previous focuses on um, the more kind of fantastical narratives or narratives of romance, uh, where romance doesn't necessarily mean a love story, but means a kind of uh, allegorical or uh, fantastical elements. So less concerned with uh, depicting everyday reality and more with sort of larger concepts and ideas uh, or, or sort of uh, fanciful workings of those concepts and ideas, which is not to say that realism doesn't focus on larger concepts and ideas. It does, it can, but the goal and the point of it and what made it so kind of appealing and revolutionary was that it was supposed to be documenting uh, reality. Um, so again, details and experiences of everyday life. And you can see the desire for that go in some really interesting places uh, as the years go on. I think about the end of the 20th century and the birth of reality TV, for example. We're not quite there yet, but this focus on art and literature in particular needing to reflect real lives, real people, real experiences is very much uh, a product of this time. And it's one of the most interesting things to come out of it. So the branch of realism that we're going to talk about today is local color or regionalism. So and in this sense, we're talking about texts within the school of realism that are focused on a particular area or group of people in, that inhabit that area. Uh, and it's worth pointing out that this sort of emphasis on really focused regions and, and sort of realistic depictions of them comes from a number of places. On one hand, uh, there is in the late 19th century an enormous population boom in the United States. So after the U.S.'s population is decimated uh, to a certain extent by the Civil War, uh, it's only a decade or so after that that you see population begin to pick up. And most of this is because of immigration. And with from immigration comes uh, an influx of people with other sort of cultural backgrounds and heritages. And this is where you start to get the language of the melting pot. You think about Emma Lazarus's poem, which we'll look at for next week. Uh, but it also engendered in people... And some people, a kind of sense, a need to preserve or to acknowledge or to recognize the cultures that were already here, uh, but 
just to give you an example of how the demographics of the United States were changing, you can look at slide four here. Uh, in 1870, the US population was 38.5 million, excuse me. In 1910, it was 92 million. And by 1920, it was 123 million. So growing and changing. And you're gonna see in the literature uh, that, that talks about these demographic changes, celebrations, uh, but also some reactions uh, that are not as positive. And this is a thread uh, in the American consciousness and in the American culture that probably looks very familiar because it hasn't changed that much, uh, if at all, in the 21st century. The, the, the sort of groups and boundaries shift, but the tension between embracing the melting pot metaphor uh, and it is very much the melting pot metaphor here. We can talk about as our sort of understanding of immigration has evolved, that metaphor is less popular, less useful, less representative in 20th, 21st centuries. But in the 19th century, this is the ideal. Uh, give us your tired, your poor. Everyone comes here. Everyone becomes American. And you, can ha you see that happening. Uh, and you also see sort of this kind of almost wave of nostalgia for preserving, again, the stories and the dialects and the, and the culture of things that are now. And part of that, again, is because of this influx of immigration. Part of it is because of the effects of the Civil War, uh, of the way in which the United States began to feel connected uh, in ways that it hadn't before, uh, with sort of you know, people had, were much more well-traveled uh, in, in, in some cases, uh, not for the greatest of reasons, clearly, but those who made it home had seen other places and other things. Um, there's a sense of kind of unity, in some cases forced unity, but this idea that if you're going to be an American, you want to know all of it, sort of see all the spaces. Um, there's also westward expansion. And, and that sort of forcible integration of, of vast tracts of land and the uh, forcible rejection of the people who inhabited that land. So the melting pot uh, doesn't uh, extend to the indigenous peoples, to the Native Americans. And there's that tension that you can see in local color as well. There's a lot of, lo there are a lot of local colors about Western settlers. Uh, there's we'll talk about this as well. It's a lot, right? There's a lot going on. There's also the idea of uh, industrialization. In the later part of the 19th century, this is where we're kicking off the Gilded Age here, uh, and that's dependent on industrialization. So more and more people are going to cities for work. Uh, urban culture tends to be kind of homogenous. Uh, and I know, nobody throw anything at me, all cities are unique. But the truth is, there are a lot of features of urban life that are ubiquitous. Uh, so there's a kind of homogeneity uh, to urban culture. So the way city life works uh, and in that kind of homogenous, like if you live and work in Chicago, uh, it's not unlike living and working in New York. And I know guys, but still it really isn't. Um, all my urban audience members, I know, but from the, from the sense of, you know, 
there's a sort of standardization of life and experience as more and more people are doing the same kind of factory jobs, are living in the same kind of uh, grid-like patterns in the same kind of very small spaces. Because again, this is industrialization, but it's also industrialization that it happens on a massively unequal scale. So uh, there are these venture capitalists, uh, venture cap industrial capitalists, sorry. There we go. There's an analog for us, like, like venture capitalists. Uh, there are these sort of entrepreneurial figures uh, who celebrate their own sort of myth of um, this, this self-made man, riches, etc. But there are these sort of barons of industry who make a lot of money. And then there are the workers who live uh, in, in a range of, of situations and states from almost comfortable to incredibly impoverished. So city life is not glamorous for the majority uh, or comfortable uh, for the majority of people experiencing it. And part of the sort of escape factor for those drawn into urban life by the promise of employment and at higher wages than you could make uh, in the country, uh, it, it was this kind of literature, literature that celebrates regions uh, and usually rural regions, um, so places that are far afield, is, is sort of romanticized. Um, and this is this is fed by the sort of mass publication of magazines that cater especially to urban audiences. So there is this appetite for the opposite of where you are. Uh, and it takes sort of two forms. There's the nostalgia for familiar places left. People like to read about where they're from or where they imagine in what feels like home. But there's also the interest an interest in the exotic and different and, and the sort of drive to know things and uh, places and people that aren't the things, places and people that you uh, grew up with or live near now. So all of this uh, contributes. And the features of regional literature, uh, the genre is really intended to capture the natural, social, and linguistic features of a place and the people who inhabit it. This is a definition on slide five, indebted to the Norton Anthology for that very helpful summation. Uh, when you say linguistic features, often they mean dialect, which means this attempt to capture the, um, the, the way people speak and the distinctions that that's, those speech patterns infer. So sometimes uh, that ends up producing a kind of alienating effect. Remember, we talked about uh, dialect in the Gouffre grapevine and how the dialect in uh, plantation literature, which is a kind of regional literature, it's kind of regionalism, uh, was so inauthentic as to be alienating to audiences actually familiar with the dialect, but pandered to what uh, primarily white readers and primarily white urban readers sort of expected uh, and, and sort of, and, you know, without that knowledge that base was built upon. Uh, so dialect is very common. Uh, some regional writers really used dialect to, um, to make significant points as Chestnut does. Uh, and Mark Twain is another uh, writer in the genre who uses dialect to sort of portray um, and make commentaries about the social and cultural distinctions uh, involved. And a lot of Twain's stories hinge on uh, people, his characters will underestimate um, the, the dialect speaker uh, because of their own sort of preconception, preconceptions or prejudices and, and end up coming off the worse for wear for it. So uh, all of these features 
of all of these features, excuse me, dialect is probably one of the most recognizable, and it can be very difficult for uh, for 21st century readers. Often, it, it borders on feeling offensive, um, and it can be hard to parse, hard to sort of, when you look at it, it's hard to see what those words might be. A, a good strategy is to try reading it out loud. If you're not comfortable doing that, uh, get Siri or Google or um, some kind of voice-to-text program to do that for you. It can help. Um, okay, so on slide six here, I'm sort of one, I've gone into a little bit more detail about the vast range of uh, agendas and motivations that you can find in regional writing and the work of the local colorists. Um, and you can think about the phrase local color as something that uh, that sounds almost condescending to 21st century ears, right? But there's there you in that kind of built in, isn't this quaint? Isn't this twee? Isn't this something just so different? Um, that's the assumption that readers will make going into these stories. Not all stories reward that assumption. Often there are pointed commentaries uh, to be had there. So we think about stories in this genre, and a lot of the time it is short stories, and you can thank the magazine format for that. Uh, this idea, short stories uh, were sold well and could be disseminated easily, so a lot of uh, the stuff will be short stories, as were the examples that we looked at for today. Okay, so there are different angles and agendas. Sometimes it's about nostalgia. Sometimes it's about nostalgia for things that never were. Uh, and again, the sort of plantation narratives. Sometimes it's about romanticizing a place, a people. Uh, sometimes it's about exoticizing that. A lot of the Western uh, local color is is that, is particularly with um, with groups that are considered exotic or other, like Native Americans. Uh, sometimes the author uses the sort of lens of the of the region the the regional lens to point out stresses and complexities in the society, in the culture, in the framework uh, around identities like uh, racial identity, gender identity, economic class, uh, and those those are those levels, those valences are often coded into the stories um, and and sort of snuck in under the radar of this idea of the the local color, the enjoyable excursion into a specific region or place. It's a kind of uh, literary tourism. So you can think of some of these some of these uh, some of these stories being more uh, pointed and, and some of these tours having more specific messages than others. Uh, and again, I just want to draw attention to the fact that there are some very fraught points in these stories, the portrayal of ethnic and racial minorities, sometimes nuanced, more often sort of exoticized as others. Again, you will see uh, in some of our stories today, uh, or for this week, excuse me, some examples that could go, uh, that you can read in interesting ways uh, if you are so inclined. Now I'm telling you a lot about what the genre looks like as a whole. You probably noticed uh, as you've read these stories already, hopefully, please have read these stories already, go read the stories, stories first, then lecture, uh, that this, the examples that I've given you tend to be much more on the side of the uh, complex, the sort of message within the genre. There are plenty of the sort of straight up cultural tourism um, nostalgia, romanticization, exoticization stories out there. 
we just don't read them because they're not as uh, they're not as interesting from the sort of from the, from the from the structure of analysis and from thinking about what the actual sort of payoff and significance of of the genre was. I would rather have you guys be, have the chance to read stories that kind of work within the genre, but also critique it and try to use it to do interesting things, because I think that is much easier to, uh, easy, not easier, sorry, I misspoke, much more rewarding to talk and think about, especially if we're looking at this through the lens of kind of uh, critical thinking uh, and new historicism and sort of figuring out what the, the larger cultural, social, et cetera, forces are at work in this time period and in these texts. So that's a long-winded way of saying all of these stories that you read have different sort of comments to make and agendas to fill through this genre. Uh, you can thank me later. We'll start with Mark Twain, uh, since he's probably the most famous. I say probably, he's definitely the most famous of the authors that you read for today. And actually, interestingly, when I asked you guys to tell me what you thought 19th century uh, or what you thought American literature was about, uh, I, Mark Twain was the author most frequently mentioned. Um, so I, I gather he comes up in high school curriculum here quite a bit, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. He's an interesting writer, and he's definitely, uh, of the regional writers, one who had sort of a broad range and significant effect. And uh, he wrote local color stories that were set in the South, where he's from, uh, and the West, where he went. So interestingly, um, or perhaps uninterestingly, but I'm telling you guys anyway, uh, it, Twain ended up uh, when he went west, he went to Northern California, he ended up working for the newspaper that was two towns over from my hometown, and like no one has ever forgotten it. Like, seriously, this was in the 1800s, and we still celebrate this. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not that interesting, but there you go. Okay, so for today, I asked you guys to read uh, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, because it's an example of uh, a regional piece of local color uh, that exhibits some really recognizable features of that, right? Uh, including dialect. So what I've given you here on slide seven, in addition to a sort of disturbing picture of Mark Twain, uh, is the end of that story. Uh, and I'm, I, I think, you know, this year, this year, this year, supposed to be this here. Uh, Smiley had a yeller one-eyed cow that didn't have no tail, only just a short stump like a banana. And uh, okay, so here you can see the distinction between the narrator of the story, who is this sort of Easterner who goes west, uh, and the, uh, the Wheeler, who is this sort of Western archetype or caricature, who speaks in dialect and who tells these long rambling stories. And again, you can see how difficult dialect can be, uh, but you can see the sort of distinction in education level uh, in, in the narrator's sort of condescension toward his, uh, toward Wheeler. So this is a story within a story, the frame narrator, and you can see this again kind of looks like uh, the Gufford Grapevine, right? You have this one, the, the frame narrator who speaks conventional English, who sort of mediates and judges uh, the, the narrator that they're uh, and the story that they're looking at. Now, the 
the story itself um, about the the frog jumping, uh, the gambling, the competition, and the the rigging of that competition is interesting on a number of levels, right? Because it, it sort of speaks on one hand to like a, an idea of a kind of quaint local pastime and, and oh, aren't these folk gullible? But also it, it sort of is more than that, right? It, it sort of, it, it isn't just mocking the people and things that it appears to be mocking. And you think about tall tales, and that's what this is, is a kind of, um, this is a sort of considered a feature of, of Western, uh, like particularly sort of like the gold rush um, prospecting culture, which the, the California gold rush is 1849. Uh, there's one in Alaska a few years later, I believe, earlier or later. Um, but sort of these mass influxes of uh, people, men from all walks of life who are, who are there to make a profit. Uh, they don't always have um, a lot of resources they often come from very different places, uh, but they have a sort of rough culture that's based upon kind of like storytelling and gambling and this kind of exchanges. So you can see elements of that uh, in the story, but you can also <laughs> see the way uh, in which it's all a setup uh, in a sense. So like the story is very clearly performative. Um, you get the sense that Wheeler doesn't believe the story that he's telling within it, that he's he's putting one over on the narrator, but also that the narrator's whole purpose in go in, in the, the whole reason that he ends up hearing the story uh, is a setup. So uh, at the beginning of the story, you can see this on slide eight, in compliance with the request of a friend of mine who wrote me from the East, I called on good-natured, garrulous old Simon Wheeler and inquired after my friend's friend, Leonidas W. Smiley, as requested to do, and I hereupon append the result. I have a lurking suspicion that Leonidas W. Smiley is a myth, that my friend never knew such a personage, and that he only conjectured that, if I asked old Wheeler about him, it would remind him of his infamous Jim Smiley, and he would go to work and bore me nearly to death with some infernal reminiscence of him as long and tedious as it should be useless to me. If that was the design, it's certainly succeeded. So the, the whole idea here that the narrator is raising is that like this was a setup, that, that there never was, I went looking for a person who never existed because my friend uh, wanted me to have to listen to a story I didn't want to hear. Like, so I, my friend made up this character so that uh, I would be forced to talk to this local who then made, who tells his own sort of clearly he doesn't, the narrator doesn't quite say made up, but he definitely implies like very, very boring story. And you can think about this as kind of a meta moment right here, right? Where uh, Twain, the author, is kind of behind the scenes poking fun at this whole local color genre and this idea of the kind of tall tale and the uh, stories that we listen to, not because they're true, but because there's some pleasure to be gotten from the telling and some way to kind of manipulate or even win over the audience uh, and not win over in the sense of like, persuade to your side, but like win over as in gain victory over uh, by forcing them to listen to it at all. And uh, the implication here is that this is true for the narrator, but it's also true for the readers of the story, which is a fun little stick to poke in the eye of your audience. I also gave you guys uh, a follow-up that Twain wrote to this story uh, where he talks about um, how the origins of the story and how he's been accused of, of plagiarizing it, essentially. 
Uh, and again, super funny, um, and I think intended to be so in the context of the fact that the provenance and, and veracity of this story was always about not being particularly uh, realistic or true, right? But it says, he said, five or six years ago, a lady from Finland asked me to tell her a story in our Negro dialect so that she could get an idea of what the variety of speech was like. Now that would be local color in a nutshell, right? Like the idea that... Uh, the dialect shows you what the speech is like and understanding that, hearing that somehow immerses you in the culture. So Twain talks about, I told her one of Hopkins Smith's Negro stories and gave her a copy of Harper's Monthly containing it. She translated it for a Swedish newspaper, but by an oversight named me the author of it. So he's talking about what he's calling a good faith mistake. He gave her someone else's story. She translated it into Swedish. She accredited it to the wrong person. So you can see here how the sort of literary... Um, the liter it's almost like a game of telephone here. And again, this is a really pointed indictment of how this happens. You get from go from an authentic storyteller, or at least a quasi-authentic storyteller, and it gets more and more divorced from author and authentic content as it goes on. And this is one of the things that I love about Twain. He will poke fun at this genre even as he writes within it. Uh, and he'll poke fun at the reader's expectations. Um, and uh, in any way, so he talks about like this, this, this historical, this thing that happened to him is a good example of, um, of that kind of attribution, especially since it turned out that the story came from, uh, that, that Smith, who had, who had told the story originally, wasn't telling an authentic story, that he borrowed it from uh, Boccaccio, which European uh, classic. Okay. Um, and he says, I've always felt sorry for Smith, uh, but my own turn has come now. A week ago, Professor Van Dyke of Princeton asked this question, do you know how old your jumping frog story is? And, and puts it to him that the jumping frog story is actually a Greek uh, myth, essentially. Uh, it, and so it's a legend belonging to an entirely different culture and an entirely different people. And, and Twain is sort of pushing back on that again, it's sort of tongue in cheek. I was astonished and hurt. I said, I'm willing to be a literary thief if it has been so ordained. I'm even willing to be caught robbing the ancient dead alongside of Hopkins Smith, for he is my friend and a good fellow. So this idea is, uh, he's, he's pretending to deny that, no, no, I couldn't possibly have done this. But like the, the larger point here is, is getting at an idea that there are sort of, I'll make an argument to you guys, there are no new stories that variations and versions of stories are told in different places, uh, in different versions in different places. This is not me saying plagiarism is okay. Don't, please don't take that away from it. This is me saying that this is a kind of, uh, this, that what's being described here isn't, isn't that. It is uh, this idea that um, in this genre, which is supposedly so specific, it's not that the, the material is original. It's necessarily that the lens that it's being shown through uh, is, is the thing that is unique and different, although perhaps not unique and different enough. Now, if it's not unique and different enough, what does that mean about the sort of local color genre or regionalism genre at all? Uh, and if it's, if it's, if it's, I mean, there are a couple other ways we can we can interpret this as well. Um, one, it could be kind of an indictment of the genre. Two, it could be sort of, every, you know, if these stories, if variations of these stories show up in different places, like, oh, look, we're all sort of the same. Uh, you tell the same kind of stories in ancient Greece as you do in, in, uh, in you know, 
the Western um, territories in 19th century United States because humans are essentially the same and they have the same experiences and isn't that nice and unifying. Uh, or it could be the entire genre is built upon appropriation and, uh, and passing something off as what it isn't. And I think that is all of those elements and that's kind of ambiguously presented like you know this thing whatever it is the genre this this type of writing isn't what you thought it was and so let's you know thank you mark twain for that and there nobody say that we didn't uh, we didn't talk about mark twain in an american literature class because we did we're not reading any of his novels but we got the short story and the follow-up to the short story so that's something uh, we have one other author whose uh, focus, whose regional focus is the West, um, particularly Gold Rush, California. Uh, and this is Bret Hart. And so this is, I think, is an, an example of a place in which my high school education was very different from, from yours because I am from that part of California. Uh, I read Bret Hart in high school and everyone sort of knew who he was. Now, we also knew who John Steinbeck was and apparently no one does that here either. So he's very much an author with regional cachet even today. People in uh, Northern California tend to know who he is and for everyone else, and I could be wrong here, please let me know if you've heard of him before, uh, but for everyone else he tends to be, to be sort of a, a new experience. So you guys read The Luck of Roaring Camp uh, for today and again you can see the kind of um, the way the sort of gold rush uh, sort of Western culture is portrayed as something very capitalistic, very, uh, very money focused, very uh, rough and primitive and very male, very masculine. And what changes and sort of like very uncivilized, these camps are uh, places where people gather and where people live in groups, but they're not, uh, they don't have the amenities of urban life. So you can think of yourself as a sort of urban reader uh, in the Eastern United States, uh, looking at this and the experience of these people as something very, very different and exotic for the day to day. But what happens to this, uh, to Roaring Camp is uh, a huge cultural shift brought on by the luck. Um, and the luck is not a thing. It's a person. It's a baby. Uh, and you can think about the, the way that the presence of the child changes the, the character and the culture of the camp. And I'm giving you an example here on slide 10 uh, of that work in process. And so the work of regeneration began in Roaring Camp. Almost imperceptibly, a change came over the settlement. The cabin assigned to Tommy Luck, or the Luck as he was more frequently called, first showed signs of improvement. It was kept scrupulously clean and whitewashed. Then it was boarded, clothed, and papered. The rosewood cradle packed 80 miles by mules had, in Stumpy's way of putting it, sort of killed the rest of the furniture. So the rehabilitation of the cabin became a necessity. The men who were in the habit of lounging in Stumpy's to see how the luck got on seemed to appreciate the change, and in self-defense of the rival establishment of Tuttle's Grocery, bestirred itself and imported a carpet and mirror. The reflections of the later on the appearance of Roaring Camp tended to produce stricter habits of personal cleanliness. So here's what, so they get nice things for the baby. They get, and they clean up the house. So then other establishments start to get things like carpet and mirrors as well, to get these trappings of civilizations as well, following that model. 
And then people start looking at themselves in the mirror and thinking, ooh, that's not good. So they start cleaning up. They start sort of wearing civilized clothing, quote unquote, civilized clothing. Uh, so you can see this cultural change being documented here. And you can see later on in this quotation, nor were moral and social sanitary laws neglected. Tommy was disposed to spend his whole existence in a persistent attempt to repose, must not be disturbed by noise. So they stopped shouting, they stopped yelling, they stopped swearing. Uh, the men conversed in whispers or smoked with Indian gravity. Here you have a, uh, a kind of a passing reference to the indigenous inhabitants of this space. Uh, the, the Indians are sort of like the stereotype of, of smoking Indians, of, of a sort of calm gravity. Uh, and that's the sort of only mention. It's an interesting contrast, though, that in this idea of, um, of civilization, of otherness, of trans, it, that moment of kind of like that analogy makes it into this sort of civil, this transformation that the town is supposedly undergoing. And you've read the story, of course, so it's not spoiling for spoiling it for you to uh, to point out that this doesn't last, um, and that like with the loss of the child, and and the loss also of the sort of most of Kentucky, the most um, the most non civilized, <laughs> most sort of rough and ready of them. You sort of see that uh, that kind of bubble burst, and there's a lot of different ways we can read this story um, as a kind of indicator of how sort of what what we think makes things necessary or not. What what predicates cultural shifts? In this case, the child is is associated with propriety, with civilization with good conduct, with cleanliness, with all of these sort of assumptions uh, that, you know, the men don't need this for themselves, but the child does. Uh, but there's also a kind of, um, I want to say mercenary, but, but a kind of predicated reward. It's not all altruistic, right? They call him the luck. They sort of anthropomorphize. He's the luck. He's supposed to bring luck. What kind of luck, right? He becomes this talisman. Uh, for the community and for the sort of project that they're in, they're engaged in, which is uh, which is mining, which is trying to make a profit, and so they lose, they commodify uh, this this child. He becomes more than a child, but also simultaneously less than a child. Uh, and so, when you make that kind of talisman, uh, the loss of it uh, is particularly kind of devastating. And what does it say that this this child becomes a thing, becomes an object? Uh, and, and sort of what kind of assumptions can you see working here in the story about uh, who's worthy of culture, quote unquote culture, and who isn't? Now that is uh, not the right way, but like both of the before the camp has a culture, right? It has an ethos, it has a language, it has a like. This is not to say that there was nothing, although the residents kind of treat it as if that were true. Uh, that they've sort of fallen away, that they've backslid from things that are civilized and they can pick that back up. Um, I want to think about what Hart's point, what the author's point here in the story is. Like, what is he trying to show through this kind of regional lens? Like, what kind of larger points is he making? And, and do they only apply uh, to this culture, to this sort of snapshot or, or somewhere else? Okay, so for our next author... We're going to change regions and talk about Kate Chopin, uh, whose regional stories focus on uh, the bayou and the sort of Cajun um, culture of Louisiana. Um, 
and she has written, she wrote, she's no longer with us, she, she wrote quite a few stories. Uh, one of her more famous stories is The Story of an Hour. Uh, it is a really short read. It's an interesting one. Uh, if you like her style, please feel free to check it out. For this one, for this class, I asked you guys to read Desiree's Baby. Uh, and Desiree's Baby is very much a story about uh, hierarchies and uh, gender hierarchies, racial hierarchies, heritage, and the secrets that surround it. So what starts out as a love story um, goes dark very quickly with the birth of a child, a child who's clearly not white. Um, and so the, the original conclusion that Desiree is not white uh, leads to her being exiled, being sort of, sort of sent away, and she wanders away. Um, what happens to her is a good thing to think about, but her leaving is not the end. The end is this giant bonfire and what's burned in the bonfire is the symbol of the love, of the, of the romance that was supposedly going to transcend uh, all these sort of class boundaries but couldn't stand up to racial prejudice. Um, there's another truth here, another sort of love story that had a different ending that produced the drastic results. So here we go. Uh, this is slide 11. The last thing to go was a tiny bundle of letters, innocent little scribblings that Desiree had sent him during the days of their espousal. There was the remnant of one back in the drawer from which he took them, but it was not Desiree's. It was part of an old letter from his mother to his father. He read it. She was thanking God for the blessing of her husband's love. But above all, she wrote, night and day, I thank the good God for having so arranged our lives that our dear Armand will never know that his mother, who adores him, belongs to the race that is cursed with the brand of slavery. So the, the dramatic twist here is that Armand's father uh, was, and, and Armand's mother, we'll see. So Armand is the, Armand himself is mixed race. Armand is the source of the genetic material that, that marked his baby as not white. Uh, and this is exactly what he's condemned uh, and exiled Desiree and the baby for. So he has, um, he, he has given in to a prejudice that his own father and mother defied. Um, but the consequences of that uh, sort of point out the, the hypocrisy and the sort of complexity of racial identity and racial prejudice. And you can think about this story sort of in... Uh, in in, con in in kind of conversation with sort of the the discussion from last week, right? From from the way uh, the wife of his youth talks and thinks about the complexities of racial identity and how Armand's um, Armand's initial reaction and Armand's uh, his, his rejection of the woman he loves and the child that is his that he chooses this prejudice only to, to essentially have been discriminating against himself, although he doesn't pay the price uh, he, his, his wife and child do, uh, and he destroys the evidence. Now, uh, you can make an argument that he always knew, that he, uh, he, had, he had read the letter before. Oh, 
there's no evidence to say that he had. There's no evidence to say that he hasn't. But even if he didn't, uh, if he didn't know before, he knows now, and so do the readers. And so what you have here is this, this complicated, uh, but in some ways also very simple narrative about this kind of this tragedy and this blame and, and Armand, what Armand has done uh, and, and what his parents have done and what the culture has conditioned them to believe uh, and is, is all sort of uh, very poignant and very painfully put forth in this story. And the ones who pay the price, uh, notably Desiree and her child. So uh, the, the, you, you can make an argument that there's no blame to be found here, but Armand places blame. Uh, and if he wants to think of it as blame, then that blame belongs to him but it's his, his wife, it's, a, it's an innocent woman who, who pays the price. And so we have uh, complicated intersections of gender hierarchies and racial hierarchies and uh, prejudice and social pressure all uh, coming together in this story for viewers, for readers to look at, uh, evaluate, etc. And you want to think about what conclusion as readers should we come to? What does Chopin want us to see in this story uh, and why? Okay, moving to another region, New England. Uh, we'll start with Sarah Orne Jewett, who wrote A White Heron. Uh, New England local color stories the most famous ones, interestingly, are all by female authors. And the two that I've given you today, again, I want you to think about um, the intersections between regional experience, identity, uh, and hierarchy and power and who has it and who doesn't, um, and, and sort of the choices and trade-offs. Now, White Heron is a lot of, is sort of, hovers on the border between realism and, and naturalism. And we'll talk about naturalism uh, as we go through, the, as, as the weeks proceed. So don't, don't worry, we're not skipping that. But uh, the protagonist, the, the young girl in, in A White Heron, is sort of has to choose between loyalty to natural spaces and to animals and this place where she feels, this wilderness-ish area where she feels connected and civilization. And there's the hunter, and the heron and the choice that she makes. Um, and look at the end of this quotation comes from the end of the story. Dear loyalty that suffered a sharp pang as the guest went away, disappointed later in the day that could have served and followed him and loved him as a dog loves. Many a night Sylvia heard the echo of his whistle haunting the pasture path as she came home with the loitering cow. She forgot even her sorrow at the sharp report of his gun and the sight of thrushes and sparrows dropping silent to the ground, their songs hushed and their pretty feathers stained and wet with blood. Were the birds better friends than their hunter might have been? Who can tell? So here, the choice that she's making uh, is, is she has to, it, it's presented as sides. She has to choose a side. She could be on the side of nature and these birds who are innocent and being preyed upon, but that will cost her uh, adulthood, uh, the com the company of the hunter, um, the the guest went away disappointed. That could have served and followed him and loved him as a dog loves. Now you want to think about whether that's as desirable as the protagonist seems to think it is. Whether she's lost uh, something, whether the author thinks that what she's lost was worth as much as as what she's gained. <laughs> Uh, whether she should be, but the truth is she has these moments of regret, right? She has this desire. She has this, this sort of tipping point. 
Uh, and she's, she's thinking, the protagonist is thinking about it one way. We might want to think about what the author thinks the payoff is and what the right choice uh, might be, uh, or might be what it seems like the story might be trying to persuade us to see or read uh, there. Or whether it's, it's ambiguous. Well, that's not fair. That, that's a bit of a cop-out. Yes, lots of things are ambiguous, but uh, that doesn't mean that we don't want to look at all of the possibilities. But is, it, is this ambiguous? Is this a moment where you could read it either way? Or, uh, or do you think there's a sort of more guided path there? I'll just, uh, I'll leave that with you guys. I very much miss, and I know I say this all the time, uh, but I very much miss the classroom discussion part of this because I hate asking a question that's meant to prompt discussion and then just say two seconds later, right, moving on. Uh, so think about it, please, guys. Uh, and I'm sorry that we, we can't actually talk about it because, again, super interesting. Last story uh, for today, again, uh, comes from New England. This is the story by Mary E. Wilkins Freeman, The Revolt of Mother. Uh, and again, we have a very gendered thread here, right? Our mother, uh, what is mother revolting about? What does she want? Uh, I've given you an excerpt from the story on slide 13. Sarah Penn went back and stood before her husband. Now father, said she, I want to know if you think you're doing right and according to what you profess. Here, when we, when we was married 40 years ago, you promised me faithful that we should have had a new house built in that lot over in the field before the year was out. You said you had money enough and you wouldn't ask me to live in no such place as this. It is 40 year now and you've been making more money and I've been saving up it for you ever since and you ain't built no house yet. You built sheds and cow houses and a new barn and now you're going to go build another. Father, I want to know if you think it's right. You're lodging your dumb beast better than you are your own flesh and blood. I want to know if you think it's right. So here, and I apologize for the, the mess I just made of that dialect. But again, you can see the dialect writing and the way it's supposed to give you insight into the character of uh, a, a farm wife who has been working for 40 years on, the pr on, on her husband's promise that he will build her a new house. He has taken care of his animals uh, more than he's taken care of her and their family. And uh, 40 years is a long time uh, to, and you can see the sort of inequity of the relationship. She's done the work, but she doesn't have a say in uh, where her labor will go. And uh, the success of the homestead has not been reflected in her personal circumstances. And again, I just want to draw a line under this 40 years. <laughs> because that's a lot. So you can see the, the title, The Revolt of Mother, and it's interesting, right, that they call each other uh, mother and father, uh, even though they aren't, this is, a, this is a husband-wife relationship, and this kind of defines this sort of patriarchal role, but also this kind of idea of centralizing parenthood, and this is a regional thing, uh, sort of uh, Midwestern, um, mostly sort of a frontier sort of, um, leftover from that kind of rhetoric. Uh, it doesn't happen. These aren't titles commonly used uh, in the part of country I the part of the country I grew up in, for example. But you can see that here. You can see that sort of these sort of titles being part of, or the way these these terms are being applied uh, as part of this kind of uh, local color of this kind of regional representation. So uh, in the revolt of mother, you see someone who has, for a long time, not had agency or a voice finally reaching their breaking point. And in that breaking point, you not only get to see like a sort of snippet of what the dialect and the culture is like for uh, this particular 
space uh, and 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 uh, and people, but it will also get to see the cost and the uh, the hierarchy and the sort of um, the way things are before they become unbearable, uh, and and through that the sort of unbearableness of it. So there's a kind of push here in this story for for change, for acknowledgement, for understanding uh, of the power dynamics in in this world as well. Okay, so um, that's going to do it for the lecture podcast for this week. Next week, we'll have some more realism, some naturalism, some more interesting texts and authors. Please don't forget about your participation assignment for this week. Please ask me any questions you might have. You can reach me through the Canvas inbox or through my RBC email. Uh, And I hope that you've been enjoying the readings. Uh, And I will have more for you next week.